Hi, welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today joining with us is longtime friend, former federal prosecutor, Michael Zeldin, who's a, a, a rock guru, and we're going we're gonna to quiz him later, but, but, but for right now, we're going to talk a little bit about the January 6th commission and uh, Steve Bannon and the recommendations that he, uh, he be held for contempt of Congress. So stick around. We'll have that. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. Again, that's at JATQ Podcast. Hi, welcome back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. And um, former federal prosecutor and rock guru, Michael Zeldin is with us now. Mike, I guess, look, look I'm going to start out by asking you this question. Is, is uh, Bannon going to spend much time in jail? Ultimately, he could spend a little bit of time in jail, but the sentencing guidelines for this sort of case don't indicate jail. However, if the court, and this presupposes he's been convicted and his conviction has been upheld on appeal, if the court felt that his refusal to testify was made in bad faith, that there was no real legitimate basis for him to deny Congress its right to interrogate witnesses in its investigative processes, then the court may want to set an example uh, for others and give him a in jail. I would, were I a court, and I felt that he was making frivolous you know, responses to legitimate requests for information and was doing so with bad purpose, I, I would jail him. And I'm not one who jails, you know, easily. And, and so my question, uh, you know, as a former federal prosecutor, you can probably address this better than most. How weak or how strong is the ability of Congress to prosecute these type of things and actually find some answers to, to the insurrection that occurred in January? So Congress has a committee that's duly authorized to look into the events of January 6th. It is getting testimony and making findings about what has happened, but a key component to this puzzle of what happened is those people who were part of the executive branch during the um, planning of the insurrection and on the day of the insurrection themselves. So it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle, but you're missing, you know, a, a few key uh, pieces in the puzzle. And so you never really get to complete it until you get them. And so 
it really depends, Brian, on whether or not people stonewall the committee. And if in 2022, the Congress changes hands, we will not likely get an answer. If Congress doesn't change hands and um, they continue to pursue aggressively through subpoenas, then I think we may get most of the answer. We can't count on people telling the truth necessarily, well, but yeah. <laughs> I think we can. I think we can expect to know most of what happened, but that's predicated on Congress not changing hands in 2022 because it's going to take longer than um, one would hope to gather all the information needed. So, so basically, the Republican. Uh, strategy is to play it out and string it out for as long as they can and hope that they come back into power in 2022 and can quash it. That's exactly what they did in the McGahn testimony in the Mueller case. Remember, Don McGahn was White House counsel. He had key information about whether Donald Trump had ordered Mueller to be fired and lied about it. It took almost two years for that testimony to be heard long after it was its relevance had you know vanished except for you know historical record purposes bolton the national security um, officer refused to testify asserting um, he had no choice because the president had exerted executive privilege and it was long after we needed his testimony in the first impeachment case that we ultimately got it so Yes, I think the clear strategy of Trump and his allies in Congress and out of Congress is to delay and deny the American people, essentially, let alone Congress, the right to know what happened on January the 6th and the events leading up to and immediately following it. How, how do I put this? Uh, how dangerous is this to our democracy? I, I mean, that sounds alarmist. But there are many who think that this ability to string these things out, to not hold people accountable, is a direct threat, not an existential threat, but a direct threat to, to our democracy. Well, like you, I'm not one who tends to you know, sort of lean toward the extremes. And I think that there's plenty of historical precedent for branch executive branch members refusing to cooperate with Congress. I mean, we have a long history of that in our country and the nation has always survived. Our democracy has remained intact. Um, these are unusual circumstances. We've not had an insurrection of, of, of this sort. Um, and so the stakes are a bit higher to find out what has happened. So the short answer is, I think it's not a threat, not, certainly not an existential threat, as you just said, uh, to our democracy. But it's you know one one branch of government's you know former members sort of thumbing their nose at the right of the American people to know what what happened. So it's 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 an insult, but I don't know that it's a threat. And as an insult, let's walk me through how <laughs> Bannon ended up in this insult <laughs> his uh, uh, ability to insult the U.S. Constitution. Walk me through how he ended up where he is now. The committee believes that Bannon has knowledge of the events leading up to and perhaps including the day of the January 6th insurrection. They believe that he has 
relevant knowledge to their investigation. So he was subpoenaed by them to come and testify, just as uh, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was subpoenaed and others um, similarly situated who may have insight into what was going on into the planning of and the execution of the January 6th events. Bannon received the subpoena. He said from day one, essentially, I am not going to cooperate uh, with you. And he's fallen back on Trump's, what I think to be rather frivolous lawsuit, claiming that he, the former president, retains the executive privilege and can continue to order Bannon not to testify. There are a couple of things that are problematic about that. One is Bannon was never an employee during this time period. And so there is no sort of executive privilege, communications privilege between a, a private citizen and the president. And second, the privilege really resides with the office, not the individual. So that means it resides with Biden and Biden has expressed an interest in hearing this testimony and not asserting executive privilege. And so they have a committee, they have a subpoena, they have a reluctant or non-cooperative uh, witness, they have a president who's trying to give him legal cover for it. And now that the House has voted him in contempt for not showing up, it'll fall to the Justice Department to determine whether they want to prosecute him for this contempt. So what would the next step be? So they've uh, today, um, all the Democrats and nine Republicans voted to hold him in contempt of Congress. So what happens next? What happens next is that the case is referred to the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, and that office will make a decision, obviously informed by Maine Justice Merrick Garland and his top deputies, whether or not to convene a grand jury to indict him. Just like any other person who's accused of a crime, they have a right to be indicted by the grand jury, and then they have a right to trial, and then they have a right to appeal. So that's the process. But the next step in the process is, what does the Justice Department decide to do? Does it decide to bring a criminal prosecution? Or does it say to the Congress, you know, you need to really continue to work with this witness to obtain a compromise solution for your desire for his testimony? I hope it's you... the former. I hope that the Justice Department says there is no um, compromise solution here. Bannon has expressed no willingness to engage with Congress. We've used this word engage in respect of Mark Meadows and uh, another witness or two where the committee has said they are engaging with us, meaning they're in talks and that'll generally involve the scope of the testimony. Um, but Bannon has not engaged, he's just refused. And so I would think under those circumstances, the Justice Department should feel that it has no choice but to proceed against this um, obstructionist witness. And so, all right, so once they decide what they're going to do, uh, and, and they decided uh, impanel, I guess, a grand jury and, and, and indict him, does he have to be convicted before he can uh, be jailed? How does that work? Like it is in any other criminal case, you get indicted, you have to appear before the court, and then you have to enter a plea. And then the judge, um, and he'll plead not guilty. And the judge has to then set conditions uh, of release. He could release him on his own um, word to return. He could release him with a monetary bond 
that he would forfeit if he doesn't show up, or he could determine that he's a flight risk or a danger to the community and, and hold him in jail. The likelihood that he would be held in jail pending trial would seem to me to be very small. So the likelihood is he pleads not guilty. He's released on some sort of personal recognizance or, or bond, and then he waits um, trial. Trial generally uh, under the Speedy Trial Act is supposed to take place within 70 days. So let's say that the judge holds true to the Speedy Trial Act of 70 days. That's 70 days from when he first appears in, in court. Then he has a trial, and let's say the trial lasts you know, a week, and then he has the right to appeal. Um, and during this whole time, Congress has no authority to make him testify. Indeed, if he appeals and loses on appeal, so now he has lost a trial, he's lost his appeal, he is determined, therefore, to be in criminal contempt, he can still say, you know what, I'm not testifying. And he has that right to not testify, because in criminal content, contempt, it's a punishment. So the judge would then say, fine, under these circumstances, I'm going to give you a year in jail. That's the maximum, let's say. Then Bannon can decide whether he wants to testify or sit in jail for that period of time. And he decides that he wants to testify. Then his lawyers can move the court to reduce his sentence based on his cooperation. And that would be a discretion of the court whether to, to do that or not. This contrasts with civil contempt, which you will know well as a, yeah. as a, as a reporter, where people have been held, reporters have been held in jail um, in, in civil contempt, and they stay there until they purge themselves of the contempt. There was that, um, there are several cases of this. It happened in the Whitewater investigation with a non-media person with Susan McDougall, who refused to testify and she was held in, in contempt and was jailed. I can, I can cite a case for you, Karam versus Priest yeah. <laughs> in Texas, Fifth Circuit, 1990. <laughs> and, and you were held in contempt for failing to turn over a source, right? Correct. Right. And you stayed in jail until what? Source came forward. Uh, I, I never purged myself with a source. The source who I was protecting uh, moved from Texas to California and felt that her life was no longer threatened. So then she came forward. Right. But had she not, in theory, you could have stayed in jail, not forever. There's usually a period of time, 18 months or some such time, but you could stay in jail essentially until you they use that word all the time, purge yourself, cleanse yourself of your contemptuous <laughs> behavior. You know, it's sort of a, a church-ish type of um, forgive me for I have sinned. Yeah. Well, and the purge, well, that always reminds me of someone who's bulimic. Did you bring a bull? <laughs> Um, that that right. depends on who the witness is, I guess. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So the executive privilege, going back to what you said, the executive privilege part of it, the president, the current president has the ability to call the executive privilege. And the fact that Bannon wasn't working with President Trump at the time means that executive privilege wouldn't even apply if Trump could apply executive privilege, correct? Essentially, yes. So we saw this in um, the post-Watergate cases when Nixon opposed the archives, the administrator of the general services who runs the archives mandate that they um, 
turn over certain documents that the, the, the National Archives wanted. Nixon wanted to destroy them. And, and he was ordered, um, he asserted privilege over the documents saying that they were his documents and that he didn't have to turn them over to the National Archives. And the court said, the privilege is not for the benefit of the president as an individual, but for the benefit of the Republic. And so Trump, like Nixon, asserts this privilege. The present president says, we do not believe that this privilege is applied properly in this case, and therefore we do not seek it. And then the court then balances um, the equities. The thing that makes it so much more frivolous is that in executive privilege, normally the privilege attaches to someone who is a high-ranking government official who gives confidential advice to the president. The privilege is designed to ensure that if you're a top level government official and the president says, look, give me your honest advice. Should I do this or not do this? The person can give that advice, understanding that that advice will remain confidential, just like attorney client or doctor patient or priest penitent, that there are certain circumstances under which that communication is deemed to be protected, that the societal values warrant protection over disclosure. It's not designed to protect people from criminal activity, however, right? Correct. And <laughs> it's especially, as I say, frivolous in this case, because Bannon was not a top-ranking government official who was giving the president his best candid advice. He was a private citizen, and therefore the privilege on its face wouldn't apply. It's just like if you and I um, were testifying and you asserted uh, attorney-client privilege and we had no attorney-client relationship whatsoever, we're just friends, we have no attorney-client relationship, and you say, well, I'm not going to give that testimony because it's attorney-client privilege. And I'd say, wait a second, you were never my client. You know, there is no privilege here. And the court would say, you know, what are you talking about? And remember, in the attorney-client privilege part of this case, neither Trump nor Bannon are attorneys. So it's pretty hard to figure out how you have an attorney-client privilege with no attorneys present. Blowhard and con artist. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. So all kidding aside on that, how, again, I go back to people who are concerned that this particular chain of events that led to the insurrection, we all agree the insurrection was, you know, uh, unforeseen and, uh, and, and, and unique in the annals of American history. How dangerous is this? How, how dangerous does it continue to be for the democracy and the, and, and the United States of America at large at all? You know, that's a political question in the sense how, you know, meaningful do you think this, uh, these events of January 6th are and, you know, how important is it that we get to the very bottom of it? Right. But as a so, federal prosecutor, if you're not able to get to a bottom of a case, if you're not able to prosecute it, don't you allow, and I, and I, I maybe I'm going wide here and, and maybe the, the uh, analogy isn't, isn't complete, but if you're not able to prosecute a crime and you know, a crime committed was committed, doesn't that encourage the crime to be committed again? Well, it does potentially, but it also is, you know, sort of a, a, a poke in the eye of the criminal justice system. If you, yeah. if you can, if you will, 
get away with um, obstruction without any consequences for it, then you know, irrespective of whether or not it will induce others to follow in a copycat way your conduct, in and of itself, standing alone as a prosecutor, the notion that someone could de deny the people of the United States the right to this prosecution um, because of your um, refusal uh, just is not really an acceptable outcome. So therefore, do you think that it exposes a weakness in the constitution, in the system, or just really a weakness in the people applying the rule of law? Well, we don't know how the outcome will be is if the if the case goes forward as we hope it will, which is to say he'll be indicted and he'll have his right to, to a speedy trial and lay out his defenses. And his defense is that he, you know, essentially, if I were his lawyer, I would say my client would testify, but for the president, the former president of the United States asserting privilege over um, the matter um, before you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. And what does that remind us of most recently is Bolton. Remember Bolton, National yeah. Security Advisor, what did he say? I would be happy to testify before the impeachment proceedings, but for the fact that the President of the United States has said, I can't. And because of that, I am paralyzed to act. Of course, um, he never testified, but when he had a book to sell, all of a sudden he, he he's testifying on CBS News and CNN <laughs> and anybody else who would give him a, a microphone. So that's the sort of stuff that really makes you um, worry about the, the, you know, the state of our democracy. democracy. Well, and, and not and, and Bannon aside, the whole if we're not able to prosecute the people who, and this includes the former president, if we are unable to prosecute those who planned and orchestrated the insurrection on January 6th, are we not laying the groundwork for a, 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 the next insurrection and, and possibly a successful one? Maybe. I mean, the thought is that could go two ways. One is this is such a unique one-off situation that the likelihood that the circumstances will give rise that it'll happen again are so small that we don't have to worry about this, you know, re recurring. The other one is, what makes you so optimistic that right. this won't be repeated um, as long as you know Trump is alive on Earth, and therefore we need to make sure that we get to the to to get to, to the bottom of it, so as to discourage anyone who might be thinking about it. So I don't know whether this is a one-off and it'll never happen again, Trump or no Trump, or um, whether this um, is a, you know, sort of plan for future insurrectionists. And if they say, well, hey, look, they got away with it on January 6th. Why don't we do it ourselves? And, you know, maybe so, but I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, stick around. We have a lot more. We're going to take a short break. And we'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. 
As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy, and like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Cameron. With us is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Mike, I, I guess let's, we were talking before the break um, a little bit about the future of the U.S. in prosecution. If you were to prosecute uh, January 6th, how would you do it? Well, they fall into various categories of um, prospective defendants. There are those who did mild things like just enter the building without permission. They wandered the halls, they destroyed nothing. They didn't um, defecate on the floors as others of them did. And they just were swept along in the mob, went in, went out, did no harm. That's one category of people. And, and I don't know that those people necessarily deserve to go to, to jail. Um, they should probably be plead, pleading guilty to some sort of misdemeanor or other uh, trespass, unlawful entry, failure to, to, to leave. Then there's the next category of people who went in, uh, maybe swept up by the, the, the mob, um, you know, sort of spur of the moment thing, but once inside did damage, stole something, broke something, defecated, urinated, as was the case in, 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 uh, on January the 6th, those people are in a higher category and probably deserve to be more seriously charged with more serious crimes and um, jailed for some period of time. And then you go up the line, and if there were people who were organizers, ringleaders, as has been alleged against the Proud Boys and other such organizations, if they orchestrated a conspiracy, if you will, to um, break and enter into the Capitol to destroy property in the Capitol and threaten um, or actually harm individuals within the Capitol, the police officers or others, then those people deserve to be prosecuted most seriously and be given jail sentences most you know, aligned with serious felony crime. Then you've got this whole category of what about the encouragers? What about the Congress members who may have encouraged them or the speakers? Or the president. At the, at the rally, um, including the president. Those are harder cases uh, to make, and they're very dependent on what was said, who knew what, and that's what is at the heart of the January uh, 6 committee's round of current subpoenas. They don't know the answer to that question. They don't know yet what role the president or his closest allies played in organizing the insurrection, encouraging the insurrection, um, and or failing to stop the insurrection. So that's, I think, what's at the heart of this current round of subpoenas, because they have enough 
information. Well, uh, all right, they have so, enough information on, on the lower cases. Yeah. It's just this latter group that um, is the most uh, unknown to them. So if you've got, for example, worst case scenario, Donald Trump sat in his office and planned the whole thing. Talk to Jim Jordan on the phone. Talk to Mark Meadows. Talk to you know uh, other members of Congress. Matt Gates, uh, who is you know in between calling his his young girlfriends, and they all decide, hey, we're going to do this. Um, what should the prosecution be then? What what worst case scenario? What do you foresee? How do you foresee prosecuting that? Well, you've asked it in two different ways. The the worst case scenario is that it's, it's there's enough evidence to say that this amounts in some way to some sort of treasonous or treasonous-like um, uh, behavior. And there are many uh, who are convinced that it was. Yeah, but and short of that, they would then fall into the same category of orga organizers of a criminal conspiracy. And um, organizers of criminal conspiracies generally get treated pretty harshly under our criminal justice um, system and laws that that they would possibly violate, but we're just not there yet. That's that's and that's that that's at the heart of what these most recent subpoenas are. Because you could don't want to. Could you prosecute them under RICO? Uh, and for those who don't know, that's the that that would be the criminal enterprise stuff that they prosecute mobsters under. I don't know the answer to that question, Brian. Whether or not there's an organization and there's acts and furtherance of the interests of the organization. I don't know that I would want to bring a RICO case. I think it's a harder, I think it's harder sometimes to bring a RICO case than to bring a straight conspiracy case. Okay. And well, all right. So then the other question is, do you think what Donald Trump, what we know publicly that Donald Trump did on January 6th constitutes criminal activity? The, the, the speech that he made south of the White House and he encouraged them to go up and take back their capital. Rudy Giuliani came out and said, trial by combat. One of his interchangeable sons came out and encouraged, and I, I was there, and everyone that I saw in that, that was marching took it to mean that they were supposed to go up there and physically take back the capital. They hung Mike uh, Pence in effigy. They threatened members of Congress. Is all of that circumstantial or is it enough to prosecute uh the president or mark meadows or giuliani or any of the interchangeable sons would you take that to court and prosecute it not without knowing more detailed facts i think the scenario that you laid out is compelling uh in respect of bad behavior whether right. or not it rises to the level of violating criminal statutes is so fact dependent that I just honestly can't give you an answer uh, to the question. I'm sorry to say. Well, that's, uh, but that's where we're at, right? That's where we are in this country. That's what prosecutors are having to weigh right now. What, what do they know? When did, what, what, what did the president know? When did he know it? And how did he react? Was it criminal or just merely Donald Trump bluster and blunder? Well, that's right. But you see, you've got two things going on here. You've got Congress inquiring, theoretically, so it can get to the bottom of this and write new laws to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again, or if it does happen again, that there's you know greater accountability in the legal system for it. And then 
completely lacking in transparency to us is what's going on within the Justice Department as they look at the same conduct and determine whether it violates criminal laws. Because remember, Congress is there to investigate as part of its legislative process to, to write laws and determine, you know, sort of events. Con um, Congress has a different role than justice, which is there to make prosecution determinations. So we don't know at all, at least I don't know at all, what the Justice Department is looking at in terms of these organizers, we'll call them that, the, the, all the people that you laid out, right. Trump and Sons, Meadows, and the like. And, so we and just don't know the answer to that yet. Besides conspiracy, uh, treason, whatever, they could all obstruction of justice. I mean, the yeah. question I think for some of the congressmen who continue to, to try and put roadblocks up for this uh, investigation and those who continue to say, look, at, you know, let's put it behind us. It wasn't that big a deal. That in itself is an obstruction, but it could be the blanket of obstruction. You got to look right, look behind why they're doing this and, and find out why they're doing it. Are they complicit in doing it or are they just dumb? Well, my expectation is that many are doing this because they don't believe it's in their political interests to do so. Yeah. That if you're if you're a, a congressman or a senator who um, if it was disclosed that you were showing insurrectionists around the Capitol the day before, showing them where the tunnels are and where the um, key players would likely be situated. Uh, even if that's not a crime, hopefully that would inform the electorate in those members' um, districts or in that member's state to say, you know what, this person doesn't belong in the House or Senate any longer. And I think that there's a lot of self-protection that's going on here, not simply from a criminal standpoint, but from a, a political standpoint that, that is hard to overcome. If I were running against a candidate who showed the insurrectionists the secret keys to the kingdom of the capital so that they could better come in and do the damage that they were intending to do, I would think I would have a, a unless you know they're in a terrible, terribly conservative district, I would think I would have a compelling argument that this person doesn't belong there any longer. That this, no matter what you think about all the other social hot button issues, you just can't have a person representing you who is aiding and abetting insurrectionists. But you know, our country um, has a lot of districts where aiding and encouraging insurrection might be a badge of honor. Yeah, well, or they just won't call it aiding and abetting an insurrection. They're just going to call it uh, patriots uh, speaking their mind. <laughs> That's right. right. So, First Amendment. Yeah, I, I'll, it was just a bunch of patriots. We were out there and it was OK. By gum, by gosh, by golly. Well, all right. So all that aside, um, where do you think this ends up? Do you have any confidence that the January 6th commission will end up prosecuting any of these people that may have been any of the organizers? Well, the, the committee doesn't, you know, remember Congress doesn't prosecute. That's up to, that's up to the executive branch, the justice okay. department. Do I think that there are prosecutions that will be brought against that Trump and his inner circle? I don't see 
that as probable, but that, as I said, depends on the evidence that we yet don't have. We saw on the news yesterday, I think, was there not some additional evidence about the president talking with um, Senator from Alabama, um, the football coach, Tuberville? Right. Telling him, you know, to get out of there, you know, to make himself safe as if to indicate he had foreknowledge of what was going to happen. So that's an interesting piece of evidence, but why I'm not answering your question is because we need to see whether there's more evidence like that and what the specific nature of that evidence is. All right, and then last, last question before we go to break. What would you like to see reformed in the criminal justice system so that this kind of thing could be punished or could be prosecuted more successfully and with less and more expediently in the future? Well, I really actually think, Brian, that there are enough tools present in the criminal justice system to address this. And I'm very nervous about the use of the January 6th events to get new and more sort of drastic draconian laws um, passed. We saw, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11, the passage of all these laws that allow for sweeping interception of our communications and surveillance of us. And I think as a society, we lost a lot of our privacy rights in the um, aftermath of 9-11 because we were all, you know, caught up in, in, in the moment. I don't want to see additional domestic terrorism legislation passed in the aftermath of, of January 6th, because I don't think we need it. And then I think those laws tend to get used in very bad ways. And so you think that the bad done by January 6th would be made worse, could be made worse by additional aids and prosecution? Yes, I believe that we have enough laws on the books to cover everything that needs to be covered or 99% of what needs to be covered. And I'm very fearful that in the aftermath of, of events like this, like 9-11, there's always a effort to get more, what I call, and what they call domestic terrorism legislation. And that domestic terrorism legislation tends to be very broadly written. And then it's used against people who are protesting pipelines or people who are protesting fracking or people who are otherwise exercising their First Amendment rights because we now all of a sudden have these new expansive laws um, right. that deal with domestic well, And terrorism. that's what happened with uh, um, the, the Patriot Act, yes? Well, that's the, that's the post 9-11. Yeah. That's what's, what did Snowden reveal? that they were under the guise of, you know, uh, securing the country, um, they were engaged in domestic spying. Um, and so I'm one whose politics does not support broadening uh, anti-terrorism legislation because I know historically who, the, who gets targeted by these laws. Look at who yeah. has I, been targeted I, I, by, I, by the sedition laws of the past. Who got, who got jailed for sedition um, in, the F, in the World War I period? Eugene Debs and the socialists, right? Because they yes. were talking against, 
the the draft in World War One. And I in fact, want... in fact, all they did was hand out flyers in a couple of cases, asking people to come and protest. And Debs got six years. So yeah, I I don't want to see us fall into this trap, uh, which is a trap in my mind of oh my god, because of this we need new and broader police authority to manage us. And, and I'm with you a million percent there, but on the, on the same, or on the other hand, but at the same time, what can you do to guarantee that such prosecution doesn't end if it's, if it's justifiable simply because there's a changeover of power in the house or the Senate, you know, well, keep- it's again, it's not the house of the Senate that would prosecute. That's right. the, those I understand are the investigators. That. Right. Um, Presumably, the decision whether to prosecute anybody can be made within four years of the event, which means the um, first Biden term. And so I think that whether there's a prosecutable case or not, we should know, the prosecutor should know the answer to that, irrespective of who controls the Senate after the 2022 election. So I'm not worried that there isn't time to bring prosecutions. I am more worried that if the House turns to Republican control, that McCarthy uh, will just shut down there you uh, go. The, the, the committee and we'll never know what happened. That's to me a much more dangerous. And that's where I'm going with it. So how can you remove politics from the investigation and the prosecution? I don't think you can unless you have a law of some sort that says in certain types of cases, 9-11, January 6th, that there's by default, by automatic default, a bipartisan commission that will then take over the investigation. I think the 9-11 commission was successful and lacked partisanship, you know, partisan bickering there was some, but while they were able to work cooperatively, is because they were a bipartisan commission um, tasked yes. with understanding what was going on. If there had been a bipartisan commission here, and the Republicans prevented it, if there were a bipartisan commission here, then I think the, the worry is that we're talking about that if the House changes over, um, then we'll never find out what's going on, or the Senate changes over, we'll never know what's going on. That all is um, taken care of by a commission because that survives whichever party is in power. So I think there is a possibility in respect of congressional investigations to say when these types of events occur, then the law says a bipartisan commission shall be established. Just like we have when certain events occur, a special prosecutor will be appointed. So you could have something like that, which wouldn't bother me at all. I think it actually would be helpful. Yeah, there, I just, there you go. I just don't like additional um, domestic terrorism and other types of laws that I think, Brian, will be targeted to, to people like you and me um, <laughs> who, who you know, sort of maybe lean um, <laughs> more, more left than right. <laughs> or free speech. <laughs> or free so, speech. Yeah. Well, We'll take a short break and we'll come back uh, and and wrap up, but you're not going anywhere without, uh, I got something for you. So stick around. We'll be right back. 
In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. With us is federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, Michael Zellner, Mike, I, I, you know, I, I touted you at the beginning of this program as a, as a rock and roll guru. So we're going to put it to the test. Oh, yes. I, I, let me just say one thing to your listening audience. I did not accept that, uh, <laughs> that label. Okay. This, well, we've saddled you with it. So I've got a quiz for you. Uh, I'm going to give you lyrics from five different songs. And tell me if you can tell me who the artist is who, well, if, if it was someone who wrote it was different than who sang it and made it a hit, you can tell us that too. But just tell us the, the song. First one should be easy for you. Here's the lyric, right? Daughter on the 12th night told the first father that things weren't right. Bob Dylan. Song? Highway 61, is that? That's you. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. There you go. Number See, one. I thought I, the reason I paused for a second was because for sure I was thinking you were going to be you were going to give me Bob Dylan, my favorite. And I thought you were going to say, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. <laughs> Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. <laughs> All right. So here's another one for you. Here's the lyrics. See if you can name it. Um, I've been feeling so sick inside. Got to get better, Lord, before I die. I don't know. That could be, that could be John Lennon, and it could be. Um, I'll give you another maybe, line. Some of the doctors couldn't help my. Seven doctors couldn't help my head. They said you'd better quit, son, before you're dead. I don't know. I mean, if I, I, I was thinking of all the songs, like the John Lennon. Um, Help me overcome Wrong. my heroin addiction. <laughs> You're close. You're close. That's in fact, uh, but all right. I'll give you the, the one last. So who, no, so you, tell me, I'm not going to know. Who, all right. Leonard Skinner, Needle in uh, a Spoon. Yeah, but that's that. That's what I was it's thinking. Same, it's, yeah. It's the same yeah. Um, Same theme. genre. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing your affection for Lennon, I was guessing. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's his, what's his. Cold What's turkey. Temperatures rise and fever is high. Can't right. Cold no turkey. Future, can't see no sky. Right. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking. It was in in that. Okay. Here. Here you go. Next one. Trying to make some sense of it all, but I can see it makes no sense at all. I hate this game, and I don't know <laughs> yeah. the answer to this. Is it cool to go and sleep on the floor? I don't think that I can take anymore. I don't know. Steelers wheel stuck in the middle with you. Do, oh, do, you see, do, you're, do. you're 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 picking artists that I don't listen to much. <laughs> I got you today. All right, here's ready. Here's another one. Um, this one you might. Some silicone sister with a manager, Mister, told me I got what it takes. Well, that's Springsteen. Um, yeah, but who made it famous? Who made it famous? Yeah, who made it in the top 10 first? 
with that song. And what's the name of the song? But you're right, Springsteen wrote it. Well, um, wasn't was it the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band that Manfred Man? Manfred Man, yes. Yeah, Manfred Man. Man, Man Nitty Gritty Dirt Band did Mr. Bojangles. That's it. <laughs> yeah, Manfred Man, Man, Earth Man, and Blinded by the Light. Right. Yep. And then Manfred Man. That's right. I should know the answer to that. Now I'm now I'm embarrassed in front of your listening audience. You'll never <laughs> call me a guru again. Just a, a piker, which is what I consider myself. All right, here's the last one. Cops in the cars and the topless bars never saw a woman so alone. Don't know. Really? I don't. don't. Yeah, no. Mr. Mojo Ryzen? No, I I wouldn't have guessed it. L.A. Woman, The Doors. Yeah. You see, it's funny. You you pick bands. Um, <laughs> you got you had two out of five. Yeah, but I mean, you pick bands: Leonard Skinner and um, The Doors. That I just never really listened to. I, you know, just like if you 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 could have asked me any question of any song by The Who, and I would never have gotten it, ah. even though they even though they're The Who. You know, one of the great bands of all time. I just never, I what never listened. The Stones. The Stones, I probably would have gotten. Yeah, see, everybody more knows likely. the Stones. That's what's, you know, but, you know, Paul McCartney recently said that they were nothing but a, a, a blues band, a blues cover band. And right. they made a big deal out of that. But a lot of that's true. I mean, the, the, the Stones stuck to like the blues rock and, and blues as their base. And the Beatles kind of spread out a little bit more. But for some reason, everyone remembers stones lyrics yeah the thing that's interesting for me about the stones is that um i if you look at um 12 by 5 and december's children those early albums i really like those i think those albums have stood the test of time as 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 well as some of the later stones albums which are all you know keith richard and mick jagger written songs i think their cover of um some of those early songs are just great and they issued an album a few years back which was a uh, a blues cover album i can't remember yes that was was good and it was great it was it was great so you know to say they're just a blues cover blues cover band is a little bit sort of a of a of a slight but I think you could say that some of their greatest stuff was blues covered songs. Who wrote, here's a, a trivia bit for you. Prodigal who wrote, Son. Who wrote their first hit? Who wrote the first Rolling hit? Stones stuff? first hit? The Beatles. Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be yeah. your man. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I remember they gave it to them. Yeah, and the Beatles, the Beatles, um, helped get the Stones started um, a, a, a record contract. Yep, they, I think they, it was their first producer, Andrew Luke Oldham. I, I believe so. <laughs> um, 
because I remember they asked the, they asked the Beatles, um, are there any other bands out there? And they said, yeah, you should go, you should go, you should go hear these guys. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty good. Yeah. And, and, and Paul McCartney and John Lennon wrote that song. I want to be your man on the back of a napkin or something as, as the, uh, it's probably apocryphal, but that apparently, you know, they, Keith and, and Mick went to him and said, Hey, we want to write too. How do you do this? And so McCartney and Lennon went back and just on the back of an app and in behind the stage, you know, one night said, okay, here you go. Do this. And, you know, I don't know if you listen to the Beatles channel on Sirius XM radio, yep. but there's a show um, hosted by Peter Asher. Yes. Which I think is a great show. And, and for those who don't know, Peter Asher is, was part of Peter and Gordon and which was a group and his Jane and his sister Jane Asher at one point in time was engaged to Paul McCartney and, and in fact Mc, I think McCartney's greatest love songs were those he wrote for uh, Jane for Jane and Peter explains how many of them were written Paul was like living in the Asher's Attic. Attic. <laughs> yeah, and and true. and writing writing these you know songs here there yeah. and here, there, and everywhere, and um, sort of songs um, for her. Um, but so I, I'll just, maintain the best Beatles love song ever is Something by George Harrison. You know, it's one of my favorite. Um, I, I like In My Life. Oh, that's a, that's, well, that's, uh, yeah. There are that's Lennon. I remember, yeah, that's John. Right, so if you, if you took the, if you took the top three, you have In My Life by Lennon, you've got Here, There, and everywhere by McCartney, and you have something by yeah. um, Harrison. And yesterday. And, uh, well, yesterday, yeah. But and, and then Octopus's Garden by Ringo. <laughs> because who doesn't love an octopus? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to say one thing, which is you know, as, as we get ready to wrap up on on. Um, rock and roll so you know i have this podcast that said with michael zeldin and yes and tomorrow and, and please plug it <laughs> no 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 it's not to plug it so much as to say tomorrow i interview uh stevie van zandt of the ah. east street band for it and so it'll be released next week we have previously an interview um on that said with michael zeldin with um Max Weinberg, the drummer for the E Street Band, and now Stevie, who has got a great book. I can plug his book. His book is called Unrequited Infatuations. Um, uh, so we're going to talk about his book and growing up in the, the world of rock and roll. And then his... Ask him who his favorite in, Beatle was. Okay, I can, I can do that. And then his role on The Sopranos. He was on yeah. The Sopranos for... Forever show another thing I never watched. Um, so <laughs> he was very I good. Listen, I didn't listen to Leonard Skinner, The Doors, The Who, nor did I watch The Sopranos. I'm just missing out on so much. <laughs> well, you were prosecuting criminals, so we'll we'll give you a pass. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, Mike, for being here again, man. I, I I love it. I love when we get together. It's a lot of fun. Me too. So much fun. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you next time. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, 
Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast.